everyone, and welcome to the Aplastic Anemia and MDS International Foundation podcast series. We're coming to you today thanks to generous support from individuals, donors, and our corporate partners, including Celgene. My name is Tricia, and I'd like to introduce Robert Burleson, our communications manager. Hello, everyone, and I'd like to introduce Sarah Nesheim, who hails from the Minneapolis area. Sarah is an aplastic anemia and PNH patient and survivor. We're excited to have her on the line to speak with us about her experience and what she's done for herself and possibly others about coping with a rare disease and dealing with survivorship. Sarah earned her master's degree from Argus University and trained as a licensed associate marriage and family therapist, and she's currently working towards full licensure. Her story may be like many her age where bone marrow failure disease struck at a critical juncture in life when young people are just getting started in a career or even just before when they have a chance to start. So this presents its own set of problems for young patients to work through as if dealing with a rare disease is not enough of a challenge. And we'll be touching on all this later. So, Sarah, first to get started, we'd like to know a little about you. Can you share your age at diagnosis your age now, and then what your life was like before you received your diagnosis, before you started feeling differently and thought something might be wrong. Just, in other words, just what you were up to before all this happened. Absolutely. Um, So I am 32 years old, and I was initially diagnosed when I was 28, and I had just graduated with my master's degree. Basically, um, I was feeling confident and ready to kind of start the next chapter of my life. And I had worked really hard to earn my degree. Um, And I was just so excited to start working and make my mark on the world. And essentially, I had felt like I had the world at my feet and I could kind of choose the direction that I wanted my life to go. Um, and so basically, um, I had come back from a trip and celebrated graduation. And then essentially after that was when I was diagnosed and basically the, some of the signs were, um, I had bruises. What started going wrong? The first things you noticed. Sure. Um, so Basically, the summer before I was diagnosed, I had noticed there was a lot of bruising um, all over my body, really. And I didn't really know at the time what was what was wrong. I just had thought maybe it was like a low iron count or something like that. And so essentially, I had made an appointment with my primary care physician physician just to see what was what was happening um so essentially that's where that all started okay then um and it seemed like it was a relatively short term before you actually got your diagnosis could you just tell us a little bit about who you saw and who you were referred to you you went to see your primary care physician but then clearly must have been referred on to other specialists Tell us a little about the sequence of uh, appointments you had, who you saw, and in what order. 
So initially from the primary care uh, physician that I had saw, they had called me right away um, that evening after they had gotten my um, blood results. And they said, basically, your blood, co- blood, blood counts are all extremely low and you need to see a specialist right away. Um, so then they referred me to a local hematologist's office. And then from there, um, they did some more initial blood work and essentially PNH and aplastic anemia were suspected, um, but they had felt like they didn't have a lot of knowledge base um, because they were kind of operating out of, in a suburb out of Minneapolis. So they had referred me even further to a, um, to the University of Minnesota, which basically they, they deal with a lot of extensive rare cases. So then I was referred to a specialist um, at the University of Minnesota. Okay, thank you for telling us about the series of referrals you went through. Um, and just to be clear, in your case, the aplastic anemia and PNH were diagnosed at the same time. Is that correct? Yes. And right. I, I just want to um, interrupt real quick and fill in our viewers. If you aren't familiar with PNH, that stands for paroxysmal nocturnal hemoglobinuria, which is a lot to say and even worse to spell. So we just refer to it as PNH most of the time. Thank you, Tricia, for uh, commenting on that. During this time, what were the real challenges for you? Of course, you're going to all these doctor's appointments. Clearly, you're probably not feeling all that great. But no. during this time, after you were diagnosed, there may have been a little time before treatment and things started, before any you started could have started to feel better at all. Uh, can you just tell us about how you got through that? Yeah. Um, so... Essentially, um, kind of looking back from when I was diagnosed, when I was going through everything, it took a long time for my mind to essentially catch up with my body. Um, a lot of a lot of things were happening around me, and a lot of people were speaking about me. But I kind of, at that point, um, just kind of lost. I honestly, I lost myself and I kind of went numb um, is kind of the best way to describe it. I didn't really kind of really acknowledge any of the emotions until a much later date because I was just in such shock and disbelief that this was happening because there was just a a certain um, way that I was wanting my life to go. And this was so unbelievable to me. Now to just toggle back to your treatment, can you tell us a little bit about the treatment regimen? Just, you know, the, uh, you may know some of the drug names and remember the uh, frequency and dosages and infusions and all that. Can you tell us about what happened and what it was like and how you felt because of course there are side effects from treatment Mm -hmm. and also can you tell us how long it all went on sure so i from initial diagnosis from when i so i was actually diagnosed in october of 2014 
And then essentially, I started my treatment right away um, in December, like early December of that year, I was already in the hospital. So, um, you know, there was there was not much time between initial diagnosis for me anyways, and actual treatment. And so essentially, my specialist at the U, she recommended a treatment called OTG, which is anti-thymocyte globulin. Yes. Yes, yes. Um, So she recommended that for me to specifically address the aplastic anemia part, Um, just hoping, you know, that that would help that in some way. And um, unfortunately for me, I know certain people, you know, they essentially do not experience little or if any side effects. But for me, it was a really horrible experience. I had had several of the indicated side effects, like I had had rigors, which was horrible. Um, you know, I had extreme nausea, just, you know, low, low blood pressure. Um, and I was just extremely, extremely sick for a long time. And it took a lot out of me just physically and emotionally as well. So Um, clearly you got the worst of the side effects, didn't you? Right. Mm -hmm. Yes. Okay. And what was your longest hospital stay? So throughout all of my, uh, the years that I've had this, I've had five total hospital stays. Um, but the longest I've been in the hospital, um, essentially for side effects or treatments, um, has been two weeks. Okay. Well, thanks for sharing that. Cause I know it all makes kind of blur together. And of course it's something that you may not want to remember much of, but let's talk a little bit now about the pe- the people on your medical care team. Of course, there's nurses and doctors and uh, social workers and all kinds of people. How did you interact with them? And are, are you still seeing any of them, even if it's very infrequently? Yes. So um, initially, like I had said, I had started out with a primary hematologist and I had had her for about a year and a half. And then I actually ended up switching to a different doctor, um, essentially because for me specifically, the relationship wasn't working out. Um, I felt like we just didn't have the best of communication between like a doctor and a patient, like how it how it should feel, especially with you know being a, a new patient um, and having this you know rare disease. I felt personally like I wanted to have a more personal relationship with the doctor that I found. So you made a change. Yeah, that was really that was really important to me, um, and also someone who's at the same time extremely knowledgeable um, because I know it's it's a very rare thing and needs to be not taken lightly. So and you can't almost. It's almost impossible to overstate how important your relationship with your uh, doctor is. And you recognized this and decided uh, it was time to make a change. And ma- then yeah. you made a change for the better. Mm-hmm. Now, going back, you've talked a little bit about treatment and side effects. 
after ATG, what happened then? Yeah. And then, so essentially after that, um, I had had a second round of ATG because the first round was not successful for me. Um, So I was in the hospital again um, the following June of the next year. And essentially, essentially from that, I had experienced again um, a lot of the similar side effects. And essentially, it was unsuccessful for me again at that point. Okay, then what happened next? Just to follow on the chronology of the treatment and the relative success or lack of success you've referred to, what was what 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 happened next? Then it was basically suggested that I go on a new treatment called Solaris or Echolizumab, um, which is an infusion um, given o- typically over a two weeks time period. Okay, and so there was a routine uh, Solaris treatment then. Yes, and then just to just to verify that for myself, I I basically decided I was going to seek a second opinion. So I did end up going to um, I did end up going to Utah actually um, to to the Huntsman Cancer Institute to see a PNH specialist there who basically agreed um, with my doctor at the U that echolizumab was the right course of action for me. Well, it's hard to overstate, again, having a doctor that you're comfortable communicating with, it's hard to overstate the importance of getting a second opinion if you feel you need one, and that's exactly what you did. Trisha? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I had, I had a quick question. So are you still doing the treatments Yes, I am. Therapy? Do you go, like, how often do you have to go for that? So, as of right now, I do go once every two weeks, um, but it it has fluctuated in the past because of the uh, difference of my numbers. Um, There was a period of time where I had gone for every, once every 10 days, And then the dosage of the Solaris had changed as well. So there was a period of time where it was at 900 milligrams, but as of now, I'm at 1,200 milligrams. Well, clearly you are someone who's keeping track of things, keeping track of your treatment (laughs) right down to the dates, the dosages, and all of these things that are are so important in being an active uh, participant in your own treatment. Um, Yes. And I really, I really feel like it's, it's a new role for me to kind of step into this medical world and kind of learn how to be my own advocate. Good. Now, once you responded to treatment, you started, at what point did you start just feeling better? Um, so basically, I started feeling better almost right away with a Solaris treatment. Um, there were, it, it did take a long time for my numbers to kind of steadily improve because initially when I was diagnosed, my platelets were in the teens and then actually I had a hemoglobin of probably around seven, which is all extremely below normal. 
Okay. So. You kept track of your blood counts too, right down to the numbers. Um, then as you start, start to go off of the treatment subject, um, back to how you felt, what you're doing. Once you started responding to treatment and feeling better, how's your life been as far as interests and work and getting back to what the way you wanted things to be going? Yeah. So basically I had struggled for a really long time with getting employment um, essentially because I was essentially ready to start working and I was denied that opportunity because of being so sick with PNH and aplastic anemia. It, it took something from me. So I, you know, I struggled a lot with some depression and just some mental health things. And it took a long time for me to really start to accept you know, this PNH and aplastic anemia as a part of myself because I had I was fighting for a long time against accepting it um, just because of the fact that, you know, you, you to a point, you expect someone who's older to maybe get sick or get something, but I, I just was fighting so hard against that that when I finally started to accept, like, this is this is a part of my story, that's when things kind of started to open up for me, um, when I was able to work through my emotions that went along with my diagnosis. Well, that goes back to something I said at the outset, where this happened to you at a time in your life when you were just ready to get going, and then this has to happen. You go through the treatment, and then it does seem like after a, a bit of a wilderness period out there, you know, looking for employment, you found something and something that you do like. Uh, can you just tell us a little bit about what you're doing now? Yeah. So I just recently, about a month and a half ago, was offered a position at the EMILY program, which is working with people that have eating disorders. So essentially, um, this gives me the opportunity to continue to work towards my full licensure, which is something that that I've really wanted for a long time. And I've been ready to start doing that again. It's just the, the fact that my body wasn't allowing me at the time to go back to work. So in a way, you feel like to an extent you're back on track professionally picking up where things ended with something that uh, is career related. I do. Sometimes I can't believe that, you know, someone actually said yes to me as far as, you know, being in this professional realm again, because I am so used to being in this, you know, quote unquote, sick role of for so long that I feel like, you know, who, who is this person stepping out into this professional role. I don't know yet, like, who this new Sarah is, but I'm excited to kind of, you know, stumble around in there and, and really see what is, you know, who is who is Sarah post, you know, being, being sick. Yeah, your post-illness uh, identity, and we know who the new Sarah is. Now, would like to bring this back to just a AAMDSIF. Can you tell us a little bit about how you found 
us and just, you know, you went to a conference and just a little bit about how AAMDS helped you and when all this got started. Yeah, so for a long time, I didn't really know where to look. And honestly, I was I was too sick at the time to even think about, you know, reaching out for different resources. Um, so when I was actually able to find, you know, essentially find AAMDF, um, DSIF, I was just, I couldn't believe that there was this great community out there that um, there's a lot of, personally for me, because I live in Minnesota, that there's a lot of, um, there's an online community that's available that I've been able to be in touch with. And then through that, I've been able to connect with a couple of more local patients like myself. Um, and I wouldn't have been able to do that without without you guys. So, How about the conference? You met people in person, and was there anything else you'd like to say about the patient and family conference in Minneapolis you went to? Yeah, I did. I did meet people in person, and that was that was nice. And I did get to you know hear a couple of speakers, and then just go to a couple of um, kind of individual um, conferences. It inspired me to want to share my story and hopefully just connect with others because that's that's really who I am at, at heart as a person is not only I want to share this story to, to help myself heal, but I want to help others as well in any way that I can. And, and it kind of inspired me to want to eventually someday speak and, um, you know, maybe write a book of some kind, just kind of shedding some light on what it's like to be to be a patient, not only physically what you go through, but emotionally, mentally um, as well, um, as well as like financially as well. That's a big part of um, being sick. Well, it clearly so. is. And you've clearly thought all through this. I think one more thing about AMDSAF, you're still you're on our patient education council. Isn't that correct? Yes. Okay, so you're still involved in an ongoing way. Yes, and then I am a part of the, there's a PNH committee as well. Okay, so you're still connected to us, um, even though you're, you know, you're beyond your treatment, or you're just on maintenance treatment now. Now we're getting to the, I guess I call it advice. Uh, you know, you've clearly put considerable thought into how to maintain an emotional equilibrium and balance to balance the weight of this diagnosis and going through the treatment. And so you learn things, you found an inner reliance and have indicated that you, as you did a moment ago, you'd hope to impart some of this to others who are experiencing the same thing. Could you talk just a little bit about this? And then to conclude, just think about what your advice would be to someone who is now where you were then when this first happens and you don't know what's going on? Mm -hmm. I would say, I would say to someone that it's definitely, it's a delicate balance of, you know, obviously you have to have, you have to have that fight in you. You have to have that grit um, because essentially when you get diagnosed, you know, you, you're, 
your body and your mind kind of go in this survival mode initially. Um, so it's a, it's a balance of fighting, but also, you know, kind of giving yourself that grace and time to heal at the same time, because honestly, fighting all the time, it's exhausting, you know, in the same breath, like, yes, you need that, you need that fight, but also you need to learn, you know, and you will learn like how to listen, listen to yourself, listen to your body, and, you know, it will tell you what your body needs. And honestly, I would tell someone like, don't forget the core of, of who you are, because when you, when you unmask what's underneath, you know, you're battling this rare disease, but underneath that disease, you are still you. So it's important to not, you know, not forget that. And you're just like a different version, different version of yourself. And you will eventually, you'll learn how to use your voice. And because honestly, I lost my voice for a long time and I just um I was so completely lost and I was able to eventually find my, my own voice and ask for you know what I needed from other people which was also really important for me to learn how to do and kind of advocate for myself well that's a um, really cogent uh, explanation of everything and summation of everything you experienced uh and your advice for others. Um, I don't think I've ever heard it explained so clearly before. So, Sarah, we want to thank you for sharing your entire journey from start to finish, where you are now, and what you've learned, and your uh, ability to impart that to other patients who are experiencing what you have experienced. So, now back over to you, Tricia. Thank you, Bob, and thanks so much, Sarah. Thank you guys both for having me on today. And thank you listeners for being here. As a reminder, the AAMDSIF helpline is here for you at 800-747-2820, option 2, or email help at aamds.org, where you can be connected to peer support network and other support groups. To connect with your peers online, you can join the confidential chat at marrowforums.org, which you can also find through our website at aamds.org. We'll see you next time. So long.